Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to first apologize for the long delay since my last episode. I had a very difficult summer and was unable to complete the research for these coming episodes in a timely fashion. However, I am now back in the saddle and do appreciate your understanding and patience. As you all know, this is all about a labor of love, and love sometimes has challenging times. I'd also like to remind listeners of a few things. First is to note that if you're interested in purchasing any of my human history books, they can be found on Amazon.ca for those in Canada, Amazon.com for those in the USA, and of course the Friends of Algonquin's online or in-person bookstores. If you'd like any copies signed, please feel free to drop me a line at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. I also have available Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirts, coffee cups, or other swag, and you can find those through links from my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, or by going directly to my Algonquin Defining Moments virtual storefront on www.redbubble.com. As with previous episodes, I'd also like to encourage everyone to reach out and support the Wildlife Research Station in their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. Their website is www.algonquinwrs.ca. I'd also like to remind everyone about the availability now of my two new books that I'm really excited about. The first is a paperback version of my three-part series on Tom Thompson's life, art, and mysterious death on Canoe Lake in 1917, and the mythology that has resulted around him since then. It's for those who'd rather read than listen, or would like a new Algonquin something for their cottage bookshelves. Second is my Algonquin Cottage Cookbook. Early 20th century Algonquin Cottage Cookery, it's a whimsical stroll through the recipe box of Jean Bertram Peary. It's part culinary history, Peary family storytelling, and part cookbook, and brings to life what it must have been like working over a hot wood stove miles from civilization during the first half of the 20th century. My third book for the season, which should be available this fall, is called The Grand Trunk Railway Hotels, Stories of Three Algonquin Wilderness Getaways, The Highland Inn, Nominegan, and Minising. As mentioned in the beginning of the last episode, archaeology involves more than just digging. Archaeological excavation involves meticulously uncovering what cultural objects or other indicators of activity lie in the ground and recording their location and depth. Despite its size and the designation of the park as a National Historic Site since 1993, my sense is that there has been relatively little archaeological research done in Algonquin Park. But there has been some, mostly done by private researchers, rather than by or at the request and the support of government. In reviewing what archaeological work has been done as research in Algonquin Park over the years, I've used as a guide, with his permission, Roderick Mackay's unpublished background paper, Archaeological Research in Algonquin Provincial Park and Immediate Vicinity to 2023. I've also got all of the other background articles that I listed at the beginning of the last episode. The complete list can be found in the show notes, so I won't repeat it here. Mackay's paper was an expansion of Ron Tozer's 1988 summary, which was called Archaeological Resources in Algonquin Provincial Park Report, Background Paper, 
which he wrote as Naturalist and Interpretive Services Supervisor. Archaeological research in Algonquin Park didn't really start until the summer of 1939, when Kenneth Kidd of the Royal Ontario Museum excavated what Frank McDougall, the then park superintendent, later called the Old Indian Campground on South Tea Lake, which is near today's Tea Lake Dam. I suspect that this was a name proactively applied to the area as a result of Kidd's discoveries, for in 1972, an Indian craft shop was established there at Tea Lake Dam. It only lasted a short time, but I guess it was seen as a tourist attraction of some kind. Kidd reported finding two stone gouges and four stone axes. For those unaware, a gouge is a stone tool used for heavy woodworking tasks, such as constructing a dugout canoe. Born in 1906 in Barrie, Ontario, According to a 1996 obituary, Kidd first engaged in archaeological fieldwork in 1937, and during his long museum career, he was to direct the excavation of numerous historic and prehistoric sites. Most notable was his 1941-42 work on the remains of the early 17th century Jesuit mission of St. Marie among the Hurons, located near Midland, Ontario. This was the first extensive excavation of a historic site in Canada, and was a pioneering model of field method in North American historical archaeology. When Ken's full descriptive and interpretive report on the St. Marie excavations was published in 1949, it was the premier scientific and comprehensive archaeological report of its type in America. This work, which has been reprinted several times, is still considered an important reference. Kidd went on to make many methodological and intellectual contributions to the discipline of historical archaeology. Based on these findings, he then ran what is called in the trade a test trench, but alas, no trace of additional human activity was found. His results were encouraging, so later in the year, additional investigations were carried out at Joe Lake and Rock Lake. Accompanied by J. Norman Emerson and R. Curley, Kidd excavated a trench back from the beach at Rock Lake. European artifacts were found near the surface with prehistoric artifacts, including a small stone axe, two possible projectile points, and a number of stone scrapers were found in deeper levels. 392 potsherds, as well as lithics of slate, chert, and white quartz were found as well. These finds led him to speculate that the area had likely been visited by both Iroquoian peoples and Algonquin Mississauga Indians, which fits in with the historical record. Surveyor David Thompson, for example, in 1837, at the age of 67, traveled up the Oxtongue River to Tea Lake and then worked his way south via Smoke Lake and then east to Lake of Two Rivers. He first met, perhaps on Whitefish Lake, an indigenous youth who told him of a nearby indigenous encampment. Later, perhaps on Rock Lake, the party met an old man that Thompson called Shahunde, who gave them a map that showed what he called the Madawaska River, along with marked lakes and portages. Shahunde told them that they were the first Europeans to have traversed the river, and that they needed to be careful of the rapids while traveling downstream. The group eventually made their way to the Ottawa River and Bytown, with the entire journey having taken about three months. Kidd and his team then investigated a site across the lake from the Rock Lake Beach where he found 18 shallow depressions seemingly lined with boulder rocks. 
he concluded that they could have been used for the storage of root crops such as turnips or potatoes. Not far uphill were at least 40 stone piles which Kidd interpreted as having been piled to clear land for farming. Now, decades later, archaeologist William Allen concurred, suggesting that these finds were, quote, consistent with the farming operation, where a root house, Opinawigamig, may have been required. It also reported two boulders on the Pen Lake Portage that apparently bore petroglyphs. Though not realized until many decades later, the Rock Lake site actually was a farm of some sort that appeared on an 1878 township survey of the new township of Nightingale that had been prepared by Alexander Niven. He called this same area Francois Clearing. An anglicization of the name Francois, this 10-acre site had been originally settled by a Joseph Francis who, according to the 1871 census, was 30 years old. We know that he existed, though his location and name perhaps not exact, because someone with a similar name is mentioned by Algonquin Park Ranger Steve Waters in his 1894 diary. As Stephen wrote, An Indian, Jack Francis, called on us. He stayed to dinner. He lives at Long Lake, south of the park. For those unaware, Galeri Lake used to be called Long Lake. Fast forward to July of 1962. Archaeologist William Noble from the University of Calgary, home of Canada's first archaeology program, returned to further investigate and map the pits that Kidd had found over 20 years earlier. During one very busy day, he and his team were able to map a total of 31 rock-lined pits. Two were half-sectioned and then completely excavated. Here they collected 19th-century clay pipes, two iron fragments, a glass trade bead, and a two-inch whetstone. They also examined 41 low cairns of rock that were clustered together, though it was impossible to directly connect them with the stone pit depressions. They also identified and drew the suspected petroglyphs on rocks that Kidd had found, as mentioned previously, along the portage to Penn Lake. Later that same year, Noble returned with Dr. Norman Emerson of the University of Toronto, who went on to hold the post of Supervisor of Archaeological Studies at the University of Toronto for over 30 years. Emerson had recently returned from Red Sucker Point on Lake Superior, where he had spent some time working in similar pits that had been found there on the opened, windswept beaches of the North Shore. In an example of where archaeological interpretation without direct inputs from Indigenous leaders can potentially lead one astray happened with this 1960s excavation. In 1968, Noble published a journal paper on the work at Rock Lake, where he suggested that the cairns were similar to the pits that had been found on Lake Superior. He then went on to propose that these were vision quest spots, known as Pukasaw pits, where young male adolescents would pray and fast for many days, waiting for a vision that would provide a natural protector. One of the funny things is that according to a conversation between William Allen and Kishik Tobias around 2005, the word pukasaw is associated with fish cleaning and is perhaps an adaptation of the opiquad meaning gut. This, of course, has nothing to do with spiritual quests. However, Noble's thought that the site was of socio-religious importance implied that it should not be further explored or excavated. This was an idea that was immediately taken up by park authorities. 
and is still the conventional wisdom today, at least by local folks, even though the basics were long ago disproved. The other funny thing is that Noble and Emerson didn't know anything about Niven's 1878 map, which, if they had, may have led to a completely different set of conclusions. As Nancy Champagne wrote in a 2007 article in ARC Notes, the newsletter of the Ontario Archaeological Society, and in her 2009 Trent University master's thesis, quote, Norman Emerson's vision quest hypothesis was groundbreaking and brilliant for its time. It identified spiritual activity in the archaeological record during a period when other archaeologists were in agreement that economic and political activities were easier to spot in the archaeological record, and that religion, like cosmology and spirituality, was outside the realm of inquiry for archaeologists. The spiritual interpretation for Pukasaw Pits is supported by the ethnohistoric sources, but it has not yet been proven archaeologically. This interpretation has been applied to all shapes and sizes of stone features found on cobble beaches. The Vision Quest hypothesis has a simple one-size-fits-all solution for a reality that is archaeologically more complex. Champagne didn't think that the Algonquin Park pits were comparable. They weren't found on a cobble beach, there was organic material within them, and a few historic period not indigenous artifacts were found within the two pits that were excavated. In 2005, William Allen returned to the site, and his test pits on the site found a late, archaic, narrow-stemmed biface of Gordon Lake Church and what might have been a hearth. Though Allen spent most of his career in education, he'd always been interested in cultural heritage research and spending time with First Nation people. What is interesting is that Gordon Lake Church typically comes from north of Algonquin Park, which suggests that the artifact wasn't actually manufactured in the area, but had been traded for in some fashion. Also found in nearby registered sites, down the shoreline were white and clear quartz tools, as well as a potsherd in association with some fire-cracked rock. The cluster of small stony depressions were found in what was now a dense swampy thicket of coniferous trees at the northern edge. Some looked to be naturally formed from the many tree falls in the boulder-strewn ground, and others apparently culturally altered at such tree falls. For those who aren't quite sure what I'm talking about, there is this concept in archaeology called natural degeneration. It means that processes such as freezing and thawing, the leaching of soil, wave actions, erosion by wind, rain, runoff, forest fires, trees falling down, and even the activities of animals can damage archaeological sites, and of course in so doing contribute to the loss of important cultural information. Because of Allen's interest in First Nations peoples, he invited Algonquin elder Peter de Conti on the dig. As Allen later wrote, After examining the rock piles among the maple hardwoods further up the hill at Francois' clearing and noting the many tree falls in the coniferous thickets closer to the shoreline, de Conti wondered if the round pits in the stony ground were simply locations where small amounts of sand were extracted to put on the wet parts of the trail leading to the higher elevations, and also wondered further if the two rectangular, vertically-walled rectangular pits were Francois's root cellars or equipment caches, since no buildings were indicated on Niven's 1878 map of the Ten-Acre Cleary. Another theory tossed around by Allen was the thought that the site's location at the mouth of the north branch of the Madawaska River 
where it enters Rock Lake, might have been used as a place for setting fishing nets in winter. Now this is because Rock Lake, though a deep lake trout filled lake, at this point is sandy and somewhat shallow, and in winter there's often a naturally occurring ice-free area. The only catch is that other stone pit locations that have been found on the Mattawa River seem to have been used for fish cleaning, drying, or fish smoking, but these are on a steep cobble beach. All of this, of course, is interesting speculation, and it does make for some great storytelling. After Kidd's work in 1939, nothing much happened until the 1950s, when an angler discovered an old artifact on Grand Lake. As Alan Helmsley recalled in a 1976 interview with Ron Pittaway, a fisherman one day turned up in the district forester's office with an archaic projectile point of stone. It was beautifully done. He gave this to the district forester, and the district forester, I think a year later, happened to give it to Doug Clark, or Doug saw it. Being an avocational archaeologist, Clark identified it immediately as being Laurentian archaic, and at least 4,000 or 5,000 years old. He wanted to know where it was found, and luckily the district forester knew. So Doug got the aerial photos out and poked around with those for a while and thought, well, the water levels were all up about four or five feet, 1.5 meters, because of the logging dams. So if we imagine the water levels down at where they were originally, there are some interesting looking campsites. Indigenous people being human like to camp on nice breezy points where there are no black flies or mosquitoes, this kind of thing. So we talked a bit about this, and for two weeks of his holidays, we put him in there by air with his family and fixed him up with a tent camp and supplied him. I went in for a day and helped him dig. He came up with a beautifully stratified site. It would have to have been once in a lifetime. He just happened to hit the right spot. He got boxes of material out of it. Overall, Clark's effort yielded a large collection of artifacts spanning different periods of pre-contact history, ranging over thousands of years and up to the modern age. Now, for those unaware, at the time, Doug Clark, or Dr. C.H.D. Clark, as he was known, joined the Fish and Wildlife Branch of the then-called Department of Lands and Forests in 1944, and was later its chief until his retirement in 1972. Born in 1909 and one of the earliest to earn a forestry degree in 1927, Clark went on to obtain a Ph.D. in zoology from the University of Toronto in 1935, studying one of my most favorite birds, the ruffed grouse. According to those who knew him, he was, quote, very perceptive and concerned about the ecology and management of wildlife and its social and economic impacts through North America. According to another biography, in many ways Clark's ideas were ahead of his time. He argued for increased study and protection of caribou, abandoning preconceived ideas about predators favoring native interests over those of whites in decisions regarding wildlife and discarding ineffectual and misguided wolf control programs. He was awarded the Aldo Leopold Medal in 1977. Aldo Leopold, as you'll recall from previous podcasts, was a renowned American scientist and scholar and was considered the father of wildlife ecology. In 1955, Park Superintendent George Phillips discovered two well-formed spear points on a beach at Rosebarry Lake. C.D.H. Clark visited the site that year and determined that though the camp had been quite disturbed by later human activity, there was evidence that red ochre pigment had been dug and ground up, perhaps for rock painting 
or for personal adornment or to be used in burial rituals. The large projectile points in the ochre suggested that the Rosebarry Lake site was very old, likely from what archaeologists refer to as the Archaic period of about 7,000 to 4,000 years ago. Others also checked out Rosebarry Lake, including Ralph Bice, the well-known trapper, leader, writer, and Algonquin personality, which yielded artifacts which also indicated great antiquity. Apparently written as an addendum, presumably by C.D.H.D. Clark, is a report on the Bice collection made by Ralph Bice. It consisted of 23 pieces of worked stone, of which eight were artifacts and the rest flakes, including one base of a notched spear point and another base as well as scrapers. Bice also contributed nine pieces of worked stone from Rain Lake. Although it is said his collection was donated to the Algonquin Park Museum, Unfortunately, its whereabouts is not known today. One funny sidebar story of this time period on historical gullibility happened on the Rock Lake to Penn Lake Portage. As you'll remember, Ken Kidd found petroglyphs in this area, and later petroglyphs were found on a rock in front of the shelter hut and were suspected to be of ancient origin. However, later Dan Stringer, a local Parker ranger, admitted that he'd chiseled the images of a deer, teepee, and canoe into the rock when he'd been stationed there during a fire. Some local folks to this day think they are, they are or were ancient artifacts. Given the times we live in, where so many are consumed with conspiracy stories, it's not too hard to understand. According to Roderick Mackay's summary of the archaeological history in Algonquin Park, in 1956 and 57, Clark did some additional poking around in the vicinity of a boathouse on Lake Traverse, an archaic site on Lake Apiango, a Cambu shanty also on Lake Apiango, and the east end of the Lake of Two Rivers airfield. At the airfield, he discovered some middens, or waste piles, associated with the construction camp that was there in the 1930s. I think it's time for another musical interlude. This track is called Ride the Wind, and it's from... Dan Gibson Solitude's Thunder Spirits CD.
In the summer of 1958, park visitor Lorraine McCleary found a French trade axe buried almost half a meter deep on the Lake of Two Rivers Beach. Though the exact location isn't noted, correspondence from 1962 from A.B. Wheatley indicated that Walter Kenyon from the Royal Ontario Museum thought that cross-like markings suggested that the axe was likely from the period from 1725 to 1760. It could have just been lost, but more likely was, according to Greenwood in 1958, traded for furs somewhere else and carried inland. All of this activity triggered an interest in setting up a special exhibit at the Found Lake Museum that had been constructed in 1953. Displayed in the theater wing, it was called 4,000 Years of Camping in Algonquin Park. As park naturalist Alan Helmsley whom you met in episode 2728 on the Park Interpretive Programs, recalled in a 1976 interview, We had this Laurentian material, which was pre-ceramic, pre-pottery. The exhibit worked right the way with hardly a gap through pottery and other development and some of the Iroquois people to modern times, with the modern camper and a display of a beer can and a few pieces of camping debris. This was the Park's first venture, really, into anything that wasn't straight nature. It worked out very well. We all got interested in archaeology then. As mentioned previously, it was common practice, especially in the 1970s, only to refer to sites where there was evidence of indigenous use as being archaeological sites. Today, sites where historic or colonial cultural traces are found are also considered by the government as archaeological, or at least I believe that is the case in Algonquin Park. With this in mind, it's interesting to note that in the mid-1950s, there was talk of establishing a pioneer logging exhibit at the east gate of the park, which was intended to include a Cambu shanty of the type used to house shantymen in the square timber period. D.H.C. Clark traveled to a site on Apiango, as mentioned previously, where both the remains of a shanty and a stable existed. Later, these measurements were used to reconstruct a replica of a Cambu shanty, and a stable as part of an exhibit which opened in the summer of 1960. Called the Pioneer Logging Exhibit, it was the first logging exhibit in Ontario of this type and was an immediate success. I can remember visiting it every summer as a child. Later, a bigger and more extensive exhibit and museum called the Algonquin Logging Museum was built and opened in 1992 at its current location near the East Gate. An old logging alligator that used to pull rafts of logs across Algonquin Lakes was added as well as a new and larger replica Cambu shanty, both of which attracted, and continue today, attract many visitors each summer. As also mentioned previously, the Petawawa River, one of the main waterways in the park, has been a known location of artifacts. Originally named Neswabic by Alexander Sheriff in 1829, the Petawawa River flows across the northern part of Algonquin Park and onto its mouth at the community of Petawawa opposite Alamet Island in the Ottawa River. In its upper reaches, it accepts water from five major tributaries or quaternary watersheds Nipissing, Cauchon, North, Little Madawaska, and Crow. In its lower reaches, it accepts one more tributary, the Barren River, which drains Grand Lake and originally was called the Pitaway. The Petawawa drops over 250 meters along its course, 80 of those meters being between two adjacent lakes, Catfish on the Algonquin Plateau 
and Cedar Lake in the ancient glacial meltwater channel. According to research done by Allen in conjunction with Elder Skip Ross of the Pickwaganagon First Nation, in periods up to the 1820s, the Petawawa was frequented often coterminously and sometimes year-round by Algonquins, Nipissings, Mississaugas, Iroquois, and unknown others who fished in the deep lakes and trapped, hunted, and collected medicines from the vast array of varied local environments. People's movements were not always directly up the main stem of a tertiary or quaternary watershed, especially the Petawawa's turbulent middle reaches. The land, especially in winter, provided multiple opportunities for setting trap lines in circuitous routes, which could be visited within a few days from a chosen base camp, crossing from one quaternary watershed to another as required. In the process, the people gathered an intimate knowledge of the land. In the latter parts of the fur trade era, after the union of the Northwest Company and Hudson's Bay Company, conflicts were between competing traders but company policies and efficiencies in the larger trade caused the trapping enterprise in the Petawawa watershed to decline. The story of the watershed in this period reflects what Andrew Stewart, principal of Strata Consulting, a Toronto-based archaeological, historical, and geoarchaeological research analysis and interpretation firm, describes as, quote, the change from the complex relations and relationship building among natives and newcomers all striving for inclusivity, to the Victorian era of exclusive and simplified social relationships. By the 1830s, when timbering entered the area, the number of people on the Algonquin Dome increased, and the Petawawa River became a major route for log drives. Government policies expanded the support for timber operations, cart trails were built to service the lumber camps and farm depots, dams were built at the outlet of lakes, to flood bays for easy winter access by teams of horses, themselves an unnatural addition to the region. The incidence of forest fires increased. Areas of clear-cut pine forests were replaced by sun-tolerant varieties such as poplar and birch, changing the natural habitat of species and shifting the natural mix of animals in the new environment. Each of these factors altered the access routes to the watershed. The cumulative effect of all of these factors pushed native inhabitants out of lands previously occupied, even prior to the first land claim attempts. The speed of changes to the land was influenced by competition for timber limits. Steam warping tugs called alligators improved efficiency in moving large quantities of logs to log chutes, but later were abandoned at places like Burnt Root and Catfish Lakes, where they now decompose as archaeological sites. In the 1960s, knowing that the Petawawa River had been a major transportation route, Barry Mitchell, an avocational archaeologist from Deep River, decided to see what he could find at several sites that had previously been identified as indigenous. Knowledgeable about indigenous pottery, Mitchell traveled along the Petawawa River and examined middle woodland sites at Montgomery Lake, just outside the park, McManus Lake, Whitson Lake, Covio Lake, Lake Traverse, Radiant, and Cedar Lake. Though many had been disturbed by logging or camping activities over the years, Mitchell produced nine reports, some of which were published at a professional level. He described sites of archaic, middle woodland, Iroquoian, and historic period ages, with many sites considered multi-component. For those unaware, multi-component means that artifacts were found from many different eras. 
Fast forward another decade to the 1970s. During the 1970s, a few studies were carried out by the Ministry of Culture at Acre and along the Bonisher River, but by far the most extensive survey of Indigenous sites in Algonquin Park began in 1970, carried out by Dr. William Hurley of the University of Toronto. Now, the trigger for all of this activity was the preparatory research and ultimate writing of the Algonquin Park Master Plan that was released in 1974. It was decided at that time that an important element of the plan was some direction for culture management. An agreement was made with the University of Toronto whereby archaeological research would be conducted in Algonquin Provincial Park. Dr. Hurley and his team decided that the best place to start was to conduct an inventory of Indigenous sites by surveying the shorelines. During their first year, Hurley and his crew examined over 108 sites on most of the big lakes in the north and central parts of the park, but they did not inventory the entire park. In 1971, the team conducted a fairly extensive inventory of an additional 167 Aboriginal sites across 56 lakes. By the time they finished, he and his team had recorded 275 sites of likely Indigenous activity, of which 172 were along the Petawawa watershed. In 1972, Hurley conducted archaeological salvage operations on 14 sites and made recommendations as to others he felt were worthwhile excavation or salvage sites. The locations of any of the sites were not disclosed to the general public, but individual site field notes for all of those studies were given to the Algonquin Provincial Park Archives and Collections. Alas, nothing further was initiated, nor any other sites further studied, unless there was some type of external driving factor. For example, in 2011, licensed consultant archaeologist Ken Swayze carried out an investigation of the campground beach at Lake Odoo Rivers, as part of a required environmental assessment that was needed before park officials could bulldoze away the grass that was attracting geese. Hurley had completed a few shovel tests on the beach in 1970, but had found nothing. To Swayze's surprise, on the beach he found some indigenous artifacts, but they did not include pottery, indicating a pre-woodland period, perhaps archaic, occupation. Also an iron awl, and a musket ball were discovered from what is now called by archaeologists the Historic Age. Other Historic Age finds around that time included a few French trade axes, both on Lake Opiongo and elsewhere, and Bob Bowes, a Department of Lands and Forests historian, noted in 1970 that there were indications of an old farm on the west shore of Annie Bay. As mentioned previously a few times, throughout the 1970s, Historic period sites were not considered archaeological. They were, however, recorded and protected for the people of Ontario. Historic site protection at the time meant leave it alone. Allow any wooden historical structures to be reclaimed by the forest to decay naturally, and as noted by Ald in 1979, be allowed to grow old and disappear gracefully. Of course, with my 2023 perspective, that attitude, which I think still prevails, leaves me shaking my head. The problem with that strategy is that proper archaeological study would have enabled proper recording of a site and its contents and contributed greatly to our understanding of human impacts and influences, and perhaps even to the historical record itself. On that note, I think it's time to grab a glass of wine and contemplate what it might have been like to canoe trip in the backcountry today 
if some of those log flumes, fish ladders, alligators, lumber outbuildings, and camboo shanties had been preserved instead of allowed to rot away. I hope you've enjoyed this adventure digging into Algonquin's archaeological past during the latter part of the 20th century. In the next episode, we'll continue on our journey with much focus on the work of avocational archaeologist William Allen in the mid-2000s, who was one of the first, as best as I can ascertain, who engaged First Nation leaders in some of his work. As with other episodes, I've posted some of the photographs I've come across of some of the artifacts on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. Until next time.